I'm so thankful that I was able to be a part of this week, and it's so good for my own soul on so many different fronts. And thank you for your sacrifice um, in giving, and it is better to give than receive. And I know uh, uh, that many of you here, it's not like you have a lot of money, but you gave sacrificially to uh, advance the gospel and appreciate just your example to many, many folks. So thankful for the Word of God as it's gone out. I hope that this week has been a refresher for you, that as you've been in the middle of uh, the spring semester, that you've been able to just refresh and remind yourself of what matters, that we need the Lord to sanctify us, and He sanctifies us through His truth, through His Word. And we're so thankful that this season of your life can be a season where you go after God in a fresh way and you learn to enjoy God and you cultivate the disciplines of pursuing God and you're digging the wells that you're going to draw out of the rest of your days. And so go for it. Be somebody that knows and loves God. You know, we all drift. We all have times where we feel distant from God. Sometimes when we sin, we try to forget it. Sometimes we cover it up, cover it up, or try to hide our sin. We try to minimize the infraction, maybe blame it on others. When found out, we try to compensate with good behavior. We promise we'll never do it again. But what does God want when we drift into sin? What does God want from us all our days? If you'll take your Bibles, you'll see in Psalm 51, verse 16, a gift. A gift for the sinning saint. This passage shares with us the desires of God. So what does God want from you when you drift into sin? Verse 16 says, he desires not sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. These two verses, they they serve as the apex of an entire psalm that was given to us as an example of how to deal with sin. We we know from the introduction, the context of the psalm, look look all the way to the very front of that psalm, just the the little words before verse 1. What does it say? It, it, It says, the psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. This public psalm was birthed via the private sin of David that's recorded in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. The Bible tells us that David, probably in his late mid-middle age, that he was home in Jerusalem. His armies were fighting battles. He goes, he looks upon a woman he lost in his heart. He calls her Bathsheba. They commit adultery. He tries to cover up his sin. He comes up with a complex, complex plan that finally ends up in the murder of Uriah, one of his bravest 
soldiers. David probably did not realize that when God sent Nathan, the prophet, God was sending grace. Nathan grabbed the attention of the king by telling a story of a rich man and a poor man, and the rich man stole a poor man's lamb, and David was incensed. I mean, he just says, that man, he's worthy of death. David's response said, David, it's you. It's you. And Nathan begins to unpack the depth of David's sin. He starts to reveal the ramifications of his cover-up. And David's heart begins to break. At last, probably nine or so months after, at last, David is no longer blame-shifting. He simply responds with, I have sinned against the Lord. And like a seed planted, that prayer expands until it becomes Psalm 51, this lament over the weight of sin, a desperation for God to forgive, cleanse, restore, and even once again use God, David got it. What God wanted at that moment was a broken and contrite heart. I remember often sitting in Northland Chapel hearing Lesola say, brokenness is the shattering of our will so that every action and reaction is controlled by the Spirit of God. It's the shattering of our will so that every moment is yielded to the control of the Spirit of God. And both Psalm 51 and a concept of brokenness is for all of God's people. We see it through all the Scripture, this process of us yielding to do the desires of God in contrast the desires of our spirit, our flesh, a yieldedness to God. Sometimes when we read about Psalm 51 and 2 Samuel 11 and 12, I think sometimes we're like, well, um, thanks, Will. I, well, I've not committed adultery. You know what? I've not murdered anyone today. But I know where to go. I'll go straight to this passage. If this is ever an issue in my life, it's almost like with a, a sigh of relief. We're like, okay, thanks, David. I'll, I'll go there sometime. But can I tell you, the sin of adultery and the sin of murder that David committed were just manifestations of a deeper problem. And what we see going on in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 is that the hardness of David's the hardness of, the, uh, of David's heart is the same hardness of heart that's in many of us. And yet, unfortunately, many of God's people fail to see the hardness of their own hearts. And what I want to propose to us this evening is that no matter how hard your heart is, no matter how blind you are to your sin, God's grace is bigger, stronger, greater. He can give you a broken heart. What I want to do is I want you to turn to 2 Samuel 11 and 12. We're just going to use this to begin to allow the word to dig into our own soul to show us just seven manifestations of a hardened heart, seven manifestations of selfishness that need to be met by God's grace. In 2 Samuel 11 and 12, we see the need for a heart that's broken. 
The first evidence that we need a heart that is broken is when we become oblivious to the clear commandments of Scripture. Look in 2 Samuel 12, verse 9. We'll be going all throughout those two chapters. Upon confronting David, Nathan the prophet, he asked David, he said, Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with sword, and you've taken his wife to be thy wife. He's just saying this, David, David, why, didn't you know it's wrong to commit murder? Didn't you know it's wrong to commit adultery? The word despise, it just means to, it means to treat in a, a vile or worthless manner. I mean, did not David say things like, I, I love your law? Did not David know the law of Exodus 20? Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery. What about all the other commandments that he broke? Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not lie. David knows the commandments of God, and yet David chooses to disobey. Why? Because his presumptuous sin tells us that he has a head full of knowledge and a heart that's full of pride. You know, in a Bible college setting, in a Christian universe, uh, uni- university setting, do you, do you know what can happen sometimes? We can know the stories. We can know the concepts. We can know the theology. We can know all that we're supposed to know and yet have a head full of knowledge and a heart that's full of pride. When we know the clear commandments of Scripture and are oblivious to them, We need our heart. We need a heart that's broken. But we also need a heart that's broken when we begin to use people to get to our idols. You see, David's position of authority uh, allowed him to use people to get to his lust. Look over at 2 Samuel 11, verse 4. And David sent messengers and took her. And she came in unto him, and he lay with her. He desires this sinful pleasure. He uses people to get to this idol of his own desire. What, what does he do? When, when soon it's, it's revealed and, and soon there's this issue. And so it came to pass that, that he tells Joab. It says, and it came to pass when Joab observed in the city, he assigned Uriah unto a place where he knew the valiant men were. So now David use, uses Joab, his general, to position Bathsheba's husband in a place that he would surely die. You know, we were talking that first morning that I was able to teach on Wednesday. We're talking about idols and how that we so lust for our idols that will hurt people to get to our idols. That, that people become walls in front of our idols and will bash through them. And when I use people to get to my desires, my heart is not broken. But when I'm hard on others and easy on ourselves, when I'm hard on others and I'm easy on myself, my heart's not broken. Look at Second Samuel 12, verses 5 through 6. If you remember the story, the rich man, the poor man, the rich man takes the lamb. David, he just, he just flips out. Look at verse 5. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man that's done this thing shall surely die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he's done this thing, because he had no pity. Do, do you know what the law The law prescribed as a punishment for somebody that took a lamb. He needed to return four lambs. This was not a capital crime. And yet David 
He's hard on others. Easy on himself. Our lack of brokenness is seen when we're quick to point out other people's faults while ignoring our own. We're so good at seeing other people's issues. We're so good at seeing other people's failures. Our lack of brokenness is seen when we're quick to dish out judgment that is sterner than the law requires. Remember while working at camp, I was responsible for the discipleship of the staff and um, I saw a certain staffer come in, and man, he just looked bothered. It was, it was Monday morning, and I could tell something's up. And I said, you okay? And he's just like, he's like, I need to talk to you. And so later that day, he finally came to my office, and I said, well, what's up? He goes, well, I got two things. I said, okay. <laughs> he said, first of all, I just, you know what, this, I'm so bothered. I went down to such and such church, and they were singing as the deer, and I'm just so bothered by that. Do you know the connections? And I was like, I didn't know those connections. And he's like, and he's just, he's just bothered. And I said, well, let me just tell you, we're just a camp. We're not a church. That's a church. And so, you know, they've got a pastor and deacons and the congregation. So, you know what, you probably should go to a different church because we're just, we're just trying to serve all the churches here. You, you can go in another church and, you know, where, where your conscience would allow. And I, you know, that's just not our, we, I, I'm not going to speak into that. That's not really respons- our responsibility. And I said, so what's number two? He goes, well, I just all weekend, I've just been really struggling with pornography. I just looked at him. I, I said, are you kidding me? I went right to this passage, and then I looked at him and I said, why wasn't this number one? Why is it that we're so hard on others, and so easy on ourselves, because our heart's not broken. We see our lack of brokenness. We see our selfishness when we're consumed with what we don't have, rather than being thankful for what we do have. Included in the rebuke of God through Nathan was a reminder that David had a total disregard for the goodness of God. You can see this in Second Samuel twelve, verse seven and eight. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel. I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives in thy bosom. And I gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have moreover given you unto thee such and such things. You see, David had forgotten the goodness of God. I mean, he, he had, uh, he had his wives. He had the kingdom. He had all the gifts of God. Do you know at the very core of selfishness is usually a kernel of ingratitude. When you're, when you're no longer thankful for the things that God has given you, the, the things that are in your possession, and you're looking around, and you're lusting, and you're coveting, and you're longing, and you're just allowing that ingratitude to well up in your soul. Tiger Woods, he's back on the circuit, but a number of years ago, he, he messed up. He forsook his, his wife. He sought prostitutes. His wife left him. It was like there was a, a, just a meltdown. And he was just absent from the game of golf for, for a number of, of seasons. And I remember picking up a news magazine that just kind of was his first interview after this, ent- this, this entire debacle. And I just remember him saying this. I'm reading this in like Newsweek or one of those news magazines that said, I hate being alone, surfing channels. I wish I could be watching cartoons with my kids. 
Arnold Schwarzenegger, he had an affair and he writes, he said, it was the stupidest thing I have done. It's so easy for us to forget the goodness of God, the kindness of God, the way he's paid for bills, the way he's provided for us through family or other people or institutions and all the goodness of God in our life. And we forget about all these things and we actually think that God's withholding something from us because he does not love us and he's not good. No, God is good. Yet a hardness of heart can sneak in when we're callous to the obvious warnings regarding our sin. You see, David was deaf to the voice of God through a simple servant. In 2 Samuel 11, verse 3, David looks, he lost, he's, he's thinking about this woman. He inquires of a servant. He says, so, so who is this? And one of them said, is this not Bathsheba? Is that not Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Should David have had a red flag going off at that point? David was deaf to the voice of God through the character of his faithful servant. A few verses later, David, he's trying to figure out how to deal with this unwanted pregnancy. And he has an idea. He sends for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. And he thinks, okay, I'll bring him back to the battle. I'll send him back to be with his wife. And then nobody will know the difference. But Uriah won't go be with Bathsheba. Listen to verse 10, chapter 11. And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down unto his house, David said to Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then didst thou not go down to thy house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As thou livest and as my soul lives, I will not do this thing. No, David, I'm not going to go be with my wife and enjoy the joys of marriage. No, as long as you're alive, I'll die for you so that you can sleep with my wife. Shouldn't that have been a red flag to David that Uriah was more loyal to his king, the king that betrayed him? Do you ever have the red flags going off, something in your heart, the little niggle in the back of your mind? I, I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't say this. I shouldn't go there. You see the example of somebody else seeking the Lord and you waste the time. You go somewhere else. The hardness of heart, the selfishness of our own life is manifested when we are callous to the obvious warnings regarding our sin, but when our pursuit of God, but also when our pursuit of God is replaced with an intensity to cover up sin. You see, David, this is the David that used to say, early will I seek you. Whom have I in heaven but you. But now he's heard scheming in 2 Samuel 11 verse 6. And and David sent Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. David says, Uriah, go down and wash your feet. 
He brings him back. He gives, gives him drink. He makes Uriah drunk. Maybe now he'll go back down. Finally frustrated, he writes Uriah's death sentence. And Uriah carries it back to Joab. And Joab opens the note, 2 Samuel 11, verse 15. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retire ye from him. Put him in a place of danger. Pull back the soldiers that he may be smitten and die. David, the king, complex plans of killing the innocent so he can cover his sin. When you start going through long, lengthy plans to cover up sin, your heart's not broken. When you're rehearsing conversations, I'll say this, and then they'll say this, and then I'll say this, I'll, I'll, I'll delete this, I'll go here, I'll do this, I'll, do, I'll, 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 I'll cover this, I'll talk to this person, I'll send this email. Your sin in and of itself does not go away. It cannot just be sealed up. Even if the court doesn't punish, even if we're able to cover it with hypocrisy, eventually the smell of the rotting carcass will betray you. But our heart's not broken. When our sin is more important than its effect on others, you know, at the very core of sin is just this grain of just selfishness. It's all about myself. I want to feed myself. I want to feed my desires. I don't care what happens to other people. You see, the selfishness of David is seen when he wasted the lives of his brave soldiers. It wasn't just Uriah that died in that little battle. You see, David wants Uriah to die, but there's other men that died too. The men of the city went out. Second Samuel 11 verse 17. They fought with Joab, and there fell some of the people of the servants of David, and Uriah the Hittite died also. To cover up his sin, not only did Uriah die, but other brave men died. There there was weeping in the city of Jerusalem to cover up David's sin. And then David, he hears the news. The servant tells him, And so David tells the messenger, Thus shalt thou say to Joab, Let not this thing displease thee, for the sword devoureth one as well as another. Just make thy battle more strong against this city and overthrow it. Servant, you just encouraged Joab. Callous. Cold. Calculated. Death, hardness, selfish. Not only did Uriah die, not only did these other soldiers die, but this baby dies. This baby that's a product and victim of sin. And David, his sin was more important. I love Tolkien, his epic adventure of the Lord of the Rings. Do you know this? The hobbits, the little halflings, they eat breakfast and then second breakfast. Elevensies, lunch, tea. 
supper, tea, late night snack. No wonder they're happy. (laughs) These little hobbits, halflings, joyful in their shire. Nobody's going to bother them until they're gathered up and they're thrown into this epic adventure. There's a ring, an evil ring that must be destroyed. It has to go to Mount Doom. The fellowship, the ring, they start carting this ring to find a way to free Middle Earth from evil. Towards the end, the fellowship breaks up. And one of these happy hobbits somehow, somehow is put in the servanthood of Denethor, the steward of Gondor. And Denethor has gone crazy. He's just been so affected by the evil that he, he's just like certain death is going to come. Darkness is going to overwhelm us. There's no way to fight against the evil. And he takes his second-born son, his, his old, uh, oldest son, the one that he preferred. He died. And so now he takes his younger son and he sends him on this pointless attack. They're supposed to go take back an, an area that's protected by goblins and orcs. And Denethor, this crazy steward, looks at Pippin, a normally happy hobbit, and says, sing me a song. And Pippin starts to sing a lament because his friend is riding to certain death and if you've watched the movie, the way that they, they filmed this section is so gripping as you listen to Pepin sing a haunting lament and you see Denethor taking chicken bones and breaking them as his son is being pierced by arrows and you see Denethor take a cherry tomato and like blood, it drips from his chin. He could care less. We pout, we yell, we mock. We could care less about our sin and our selfishness and how it spills into our family seriously. If we were to bring parents and they were just to replay some of the last conversations you had when you left home, what would they say? If we were to bring in roommates and just ask, what are the words your roommate says? What are the words that come out of your lips? Some of us are so filled with arrows and we spit them aesthetically at those around us. But all these manifestations can almost hide the most important point. Look at 2 Samuel 11, verse 28. I mean, all these selfish manifestations are, are sometimes a cover-up for the most important thing. Look, look at what he says there. But the thing that David had done, what? You, you say that. The thing that David had done, what? Displeased the Lord. That should concern us. That, that you should be bothered. Our trampling of others, our using of others, our forgetfulness of God's goodness, it displeases the Lord. These transgressions, they're not trivial. These selfish choices cannot be hidden. The weight of our sin is heavy. We are the prodigal in the hog pen. We are the Isaiah crushed before God. God is showing us our bent towards sin, our need for him. You see, what I'm asking for is that you would consider that your manifestations of sin, the things you say, the things you do, the things you think are driven by a selfishness that drives you. 
prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Who here is able to live perfectly? Who here is able to maintain a perfect sacrifice pleasing to God? The weight of sin is crushing. That's what the law does. The law shows us our infractions and how we've fallen short to the expectations and the character of God. And you begin to see as the law enters into our life, God uses the weight of our sin to break us of self-righteousness and crush us of our self-dependence. Left to your own vices, you will sin. Our only hope is God. No other, no other story describes our natural heart condition like 2 Samuel 11 and 12. But no other Bible prayer expresses the lips of confession quite like Psalm 51. Will you turn there? Because in Psalm 51... I want to introduce you to a friend. I um, left Idaho. I went to Northland. I I never once visited. Seriously. Um, We got this little pamphlet. And my dad goes, huh, maybe you should go there. I said, okay. I drove there. And for the first time, I... I think I was a believer prior, but for the first time, my heart was getting sliced open through his word and relationship. And somewhere in my second semester freshman year, God just busted open just a whole pool of bitterness. I had a bunch of stuff from my growing up years. I mean, it was like, it was like stuff, and then that, 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 that dam was holding back, like all sorts of things. Man, I went home my freshman summer, and I just started clearing my conscience and taking care of things I'd stolen and things I said. And I, I went back and, uh, the next, uh, next year, my sophomore year, and, and I, I found it was the first time I ever even heard of the term study Bible. And there was a Ryrie study Bible in the bookstore, and it was 50 bucks. That was a lot of money. And I bought my first study Bible, and for the first time, I just started reading the Bible. I mean, like, just start. I just was like, okay, yeah, great, awesome. Whoa, wow, I never, wow. (laughs) You should read this. But all along the way, I'd be stumbling. Don't you wish you could just confess sin and never be tempted again? I just became more and more discouraged. Those clouds of sin... Those old habits that just didn't want to die. As I'm just reading through the Bible, I I come up to Psalm 51 for the first time. I couldn't leave. And if you were to take that old Ryrie Bible, I still have it. And you were to go like this. There's my friend. And you know what Psalm 51 will do for you? I'll give you five handholds to climb up out of your pit of sin and self.
Much of Scripture talks to us, but Psalm 51 talks for us. Brokenness is a shattering of my will. So that every action and reaction is controlled by the Spirit of God. David, upon hearing the rebuke of Nathan, he simply said, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against the Lord. Sometime after this private sin was exposed, he composes this public psalm. And as a gift to God's people, there's this prayer that's to be sung publicly. as an encouragement to know that God, what God wants when his people sin. The prayer of a heart that's broken cries out to God with phrases like we're going to see. And the first phrase is this, Lord, forgive me. Look at verse 1 and 2. He says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from sin. Can, can you hear the intensity? I mean, David just bursts wide open. He doesn't wait for the slow build. He doesn't wait for the, the lengthy explanation. He simply says, have mercy on me. It's like he's shouting out for forgiveness. This loud, broken-hearted cry comes from from one that's seen their sin and its devastating effects, the way that sin had pushed him so low that the psalmist almost uses every word, every Hebrew word that's available to him to describe sin. Did you see transgression? That's our open rebellion, iniquity. It's that perverse nature that's bent and twisted, sin. It's when we've fallen short of the expectations of God. I mean, think back, 2 Samuel 11 and 12, what David did was hideous. He murdered multiple people so he could sleep with a woman. But think of our own rebellion. It crushes. Lord, forgive me. With intensity, it's almost offensive. Seriously, think about this. This one just sinned against God and with imperatives. Every one of those verbs is imperative in verse 1 and 2. And with an intensity, these four verbs, he's just like, Lord, have mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. But, But they're not offensive to God because they're desperate imperatives. When you're lost at sea, you don't whisper for help. When you're dying of a heart attack in the library, you do not respect the no talking sign. You're desperate. Lord, forgive me. He says, have mercy on me. You could translate that, grace me. It's similar to the words used in the priestly benediction when the priest would say, may the Lord be gracious to you to cry out, have mercy on me, O God. It just means that the penitent one has come to the end of himself. My sin is great. I need grace that's greater. Show me mercy. I have no hope but God. My sin runs deep. Grace me. Blot out my transgressions. Wipe it away. Scrape it off. Remove the permanent stain. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Take my dirty clothes of sin and wash them entirely. Cleanse me from sin so I can come into your presence. How is it these desperate imperatives are not offensive because they're also dependent imperatives? You see, David... David's told to us as, or uh, referred to us as the man after God's own heart. 
He understands the character and promises of God. Look, look what he does. These cries are directed to the one who can forgive. They're directed to the one that has the capacity. Look what he says. According to thy loving kindness. According to the multitude of thy tender mercies. In this, in this desperate, dependent, imperative, David is honoring God. When sin disrupts our fellowship with a covenant-keeping God. Although we ourselves have no right to those divine blessings, a covenant-keeping God who promised to forgive does. Exodus 34, the Lord passed before him and said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. His love is steadfast. His mercy is abundant. I've got a question I want you to answer right now. You just answer this. Are your sins too big for God? How many of you are thankful that God is a covenant-keeping God? How many thankful that if we confess our sin... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why would any one of us want to keep our sin? Let your, let your brokenness over sin be met by the steadfast love and the abundant mercy of God. Be intense, like, like tonight. Be intense and just cry out with David, Lord, forgive me. The second thing we see here in Psalm 51, the second handhold to help us climb out of our pit of despair and selfishness is, Lord, I confess my sin. After this explosive cry of forgiveness, he says, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against thee and the only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts and in the inward part thou shalt make me know wisdom. My sin is ever before me. Lord, forgive me. But now, Lord, I confess He switches from the imperative and he goes to the indicative and now he just gets honest. He was intense and now he's just telling the truth. He just tells it like it is. that The verbs switch the indicative and 30 times he uses a personal pronoun. The cold hard facts are the fact that David's a sinner. David knows he's fallen short. He makes no excuses. He doesn't say anything like others have, so why can't I? They made me do it. My past is the reason. You probably would have done the same in my shoes. I'm not as bad as you think. I'm, I'm not as bad as others. No. I have sinned against the Lord. My sin is before me. My sin is ultimately before God. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. You're just if you want to judge me. You're clear if you want to condemn me. With honesty and without minimizing the pain that he caused all those other people, he recognized that ultimately his sin against God. By the way, this is when we really begin to grow as a Christian. In the sanctifying process, it is when we begin to connect everything on this earth with our horizontal relationship with God. 
When you begin to understand that your fear is because you do not trust God. When you begin to understand that you do not, you, you do not love because you do not understand God's love for you. When you begin to connect all of your horizontal behavior with your vertical relationship with God and with honesty, David just says it as it is. Your words are just. Your judgments are blameless. My sin is ever before me. It's ultimately before God, and it's a part of me. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Do you know what God wants to do over these next four years that you're here, listening to God's word preached over and over and over as you really become a full, a full adult. You know, you know what God wants you to do is to push past outward manifestations of your behavior and begin to understand the desires that drive that behavior so that you can become dependent on the one who can save you. Are you being honest about who you are the sins you're hiding? Do you know what drives you? David said, Lord, forgive me. He said, Lord, I confess my sin. But he said, Lord, cleanse me, verse 7 through 9. It's poetic. He returns to that which he started with, but listen to what he does. Purge me with hyssop. I shall be clean. Wash me. I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy vase from my sin. Blot out all my transgressions. It's, it's now he returns. And with a cautious yet confident tone, David asked God to mercifully remove the guilt and the grief caused by his sinful choices. He didn't start with this. He, he, remember, he started with an admission. He started with an acknowledgement. And now he's saying, now, Lord, please. And he uses a unique grammar. It, it's an if-then kind of a clause. He's, he's like, purge me. If you purge me, I will be clean. If you wash me, then I will be whiter than snow. Cleanse me from guilt. Just like the priest would take this branch of hyssop and, and take ceremonial water and, and, and splash it on one to cer- ceremonially clean them. He's saying, that's what I want. I want to come into your presence. Do you know what I find is that there's some of us, we, we've got a broken concept of, of sin, law, grace. We, we have this broken concept that we almost try to pay for our sin. It's like we can only come to God and we can only ask for forgiveness after I've moaned and after I've whipped myself and after I've, I've punished myself for, okay, that sin's two days, that sin's four days, that sin's six days. And maybe we really do take a season and get before God and then we're kind of like, oh, but you know what, I'm, I'm actually just a, a bad person. No, every Every look to self ought to be counted with 20 looks to Jesus. You see your sin? You've confessed your sin. Lord, cleanse me from guilt. Lord, cleanse me from pain. Sin's effect lingers, doesn't it? And I broke my pinky years ago. Isn't that, isn't that awesome and manly? I broke my pinky. Everyone's followed aches, atmospheric pressure. You know, every once in a while, I'll remember something I've done, something I've said.
Where else can I take my sin? Make me hear joy and gladness. The bones which you broke may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sin. Lord, help me believe that you've forgiven me and my sin is covered. Help me believe that you scraped the graffiti of my iniquity off the wall of my soul. And then he switches this prayer. He started, he started, Lord, forgive me. Lord, I confess my sin. Lord, cleanse me. But now he switches to, Lord, renew me and keep me. Verse 10 through 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And I'll hold me with thy free spirit. You know, when I really studied 2 Samuel 11 and 12, to hear Samuel say, this is a man after God's own heart, that's, that's almost, it's almost incomprehensible. It's, just, it's almost like I can't understand that. But when you read this, verse 10, David didn't say, let the kingdom respect me. He didn't say, bring me riches, bring me favor. What did he say? Created me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. This is the opposite of self-righteousness. This is practical brokenness. You see, what David wants is a heart for God. Do you know there's a blessing to getting older? Like there's a blessing. There's, there's temptations that, that you begin to go like, no, I don't want, I don't want to go there. I want Jesus. There's little whispers of mortality. You, you heard of heaven in Sunday school, right? You saw pictures, big picture books about it. And yet as you get older, you begin to contemplate, no, I, I only really have Jesus. That's the only one I have. That's the only, that's the only person. That's my, only, that's my chief treasure. I, I love all these things. I love all these relationships. But I really only have Jesus David, he took of his idol, he took his pleasure. He thought it would satisfy. It broke him, it crushed him. He said, I just want you, God. I want your presence. Don't, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. I want your presence, the enabling power of your spirit. Don't take that away. I just want you to touch my affections. Renew my joy for the, the works of the Lord. I, I just want to sing on the hills of Bethlehem again. I just want my harp, and I just want to take care of the sheep. And, and Lord, keep me from ever forgetting you again. Uphold me with your willing spirit. How many of you have ever confessed a sin and you got this fear, you're just going to do it tomorrow? My favorite verse in Psalm 119, verse 176. I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek thy Servant. Here's David. I have nowhere to go. I'm a wretch. I'm selfish. 
I'm broke. I'm, I'm, I'm a hard hearted person. Break me. Forgive me, he says. I confess my sin. Cleanse me. Renew and keep me. And the fifth handhold is just a response. Lord, I commit to serve and worship you with all my heart. Right? The one that forgives, he gets my heart. The one who restores, he gets my life. He gets my worship. Verse 13, then will I teach transgressors thy ways. God, when you do this work in me, when you forgive me and you restore your spirit and you bring back the joy, I will then teach transgressors once you've done your work and sinners, they'll be converted to you. Oh, deliver me from blood guiltiness, oh God. Oh God of my salvation, my tongue will sing aloud of thy righteousness. Oh Lord, open thou my lips and my mouth will show forth thy praise. For you don't want sacrifice or I would do it. I know how to round up a hundred thousand lambs and bring them over the brook Kidron. I know how to slay them on the day of atonement. I know how to water the soil with the blood of lambs. You don't want that. You want a broken heart. Oh God, you don't just want some burnt sacrifice because your sacrifices are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you won't despise. Lord, here I am. Use me. I just, here I am. Use my life story to help others return to you. That's what he says. Just use me, Lord. I'll do whatever. I'll say whatever. I have nothing to hide, Lord. I'll write a psalm. I'll write a psalm so that people through the ages know of my wickedness. If that's what you want, because it's not glorying the wickedness, it's going to glory the fact that you are a God who is a covenant-keeping God. Use my lips to praise your name. How can I not sing of your praises? You ever had the chance to be in a situation where broken individuals truly found Christ? They sing. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Open my lips and my mouth will sing forth your praise. I was in um, New York City and the pastor um, and I, we took his motorcycle, we were riding double to use Brother Steve's word, awkward. We drove to a, a prison in New York City, bad state prison. And um, we go in, and it's like multiple levels of security. It's maximum security prison. And we go all the way in the middle of this prison. And this pastor would hold a Bible study, a little prayer service, a kind of a chapel service. And there was only about 25 guys. And they, um, the worst of the worst, who'd found grace. And these dudes could sing because they've been forgiven. He just says it, use me in any way you want. Let the reality of sin crush me so that your grace will shatter my will and my every action and reaction would just be controlled by your 
spirit. And then in verse 18 through 19, he just says, please don't just renew me, but renew all your people. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness. So, oh, we'll return back to those things that you've commanded us to do. David wasn't negating what God had commanded, just the right order. It's like he wanted the heart. God wanted the heart that was broken. We'll, we'll return to these, these burnt offerings, the whole burnt offering. They shall offer bullocks upon thy altar. David's sin is great. It's great. His actions betrayed his condition. I have a question. What was the penalty for stealing a lamb? But what was the penalty for committing murder? And adultery. Who deserved to die? But others died for David. Uriah died. The soldiers next to Uriah died. Later on, one of his own sons dies. This little baby dies. But then, David and Bathsheba have another son. His name is Solomon. And he has a son. 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 Until another son of David is born in Bethlehem. And this son died for the sins of David as well. And this son of David lived perfectly. Never once did he break the law. In every way, he fulfilled the righteousness of God's commands. And this son of David, the perfect lamb of God, died on the cross not just for the sin of David, but he died for the sin of you. Have you ever tasted of the joy of being forgiven through the finished work of Jesus Christ? Have you ever laid aside your own self-righteousness and your, your striving to keep the law? Have you ever been forgiven? Then run from self and plead for the grace of of God. And Christian, if we're saved through the finished work of Jesus Christ, why would I run to anywhere else? Why would I cover my sin? Why would I hide any longer? Why would I leave this place tonight trying to cover my sin, run to the perfect Lamb of God, and find the rest of one 
forgiven by God.